Welcome back to Victor E. History Podcast from the Department of History at Fort Hay State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Professor Holly Marquez and me, Dr. Manami Guha, highlight student, faculty, and alumni research. I'm Manami Guha, and today we have with us Professor Daniel McClure, Assistant Professor of History here at Fort Hayes. He teaches courses on the theory of capitalism, U.S. history during the civil rights era, popular music, history and culture, history of racism, and historical theory. He has co-authored Historical Theory and Methods Through Popular Music, 1970 to 2000, published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Here we are with him today to talk about his new book, Winter in America, a cultural history of neoliberalism from the 60s to the Reagan Revolution, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Welcome, Dan. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about your book. So what is the fundamental premise of the book? Uh, so the book talks about a period of conjuncture in the U.S., when a few different events come together uh, between the 60s and the 80s, and what emerges from that is neoliberalism. One of the things I try to do with the book is look at various nodes and how they intersected. Um, but at the same time, I had these different agents, moments, and institutions that are not necessarily related, but I place them in dialogue. And so in a way, it's an intellectual history mm -hmm. when we're looking at neoliberal economists or uh, conservative intellectuals, mm -hmm. um, intellectuals from the Black radical tradition. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it's a social cultural history of sort of the white working and middle class mm -hmm. and going from sort of this, what I call a Jim Crow welfare state, sort of a whites only post-war period mm -hmm. and moving into the 60s with the rise of social quality legislation the welfare state's open to people of color and women, and suddenly you have this shift. So that's sort of the social cultural history element. I also do a business history, looking at multinational corporations in finance across the post-war years. Um, but also I look at Business Week from okay. the 50s up through the 80s. Okay. Um, and then finally, popular culture. So I look at the films of John Wayne. Um, I look at 70s exploitation films, particularly the the women in prison genre, but the ones that are filmed in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So it sort of kind of brings in that outsourcing, right? Companies outsourcing uh, a production abroad, right. but merging that with popular culture representations that for the time showed sort of second wave feminism on film via women in prisons fighting back, you know, overcoming their oppressors. And at the same time, they're, you know, they're, they're brutalized through the process. So it's this strange, uh, a mix of popular culture and economics. So yeah, that's basically, and what happens are these, these elements come together in a certain way that leads to neoliberalism and the dismantling of the welfare. Um, so you're looking at this history then from a various different angles, this coming of the era of neoliberalism. And you've already talked about it, but could you give us a little bit of a context on or background to the America? And you've talked about it, but if you had to narrow it down to say three or four moments that made America ripe and ready for neoliberalism to appear. Um, so neoliberalism itself is 
a movement of intellectuals, but primarily economists in reaction to the welfare state. So mm -hmm. with the Great Depression, um, classical liberalism is sort of cast aside uh, and you have the rise of, of Keynesian economics. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a backlash because you have governments, the UK and the United States, who begin to create policies aimed towards working and middle class um, people. Mm -hmm. In the United States, it's primarily white. And you have a backlash from a segment of business that did not want this welfare state to arise. It gave power to workers um, and it took away the prerogatives of really the wealthy and sort of corporate power in the United States that defined the industrial era, late 1800s through the 1920s. And so neoliberalism begins to attack uh, the welfare state in the 30s, mm -hmm. especially, but it does keeps doing so in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. What neoliberalism can't do necessarily is convince the working and middle-class white Americans that their ideas are good because the welfare state creates the most prosperous middle-class the world's ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, so in a, in, in a way it worked. Um, and so neoliberalism and conservatives, because conservatives, uh, right-wing conservatives, were definitely um, against the welfare state. And what they really needed was a perfect storm to convince a group, the, the primary group of beneficiaries of the welfare state, that the welfare state was bad. This perfect storm comes in the 60s with civil rights in the Vietnam War. Civil rights leads to social equality between especially white men and people of color, but also women. And so right. white men now have to compete with all women as, uh, alongside people of color. And then the 70s becomes the first decade in the history of the US when white men, especially white men of property, are forced legislatively to compete with people of color and women for political and economic opportunities. Right. After over 300 years of slavery mm -hmm. and uh, Jim, Jim Crow. Crow policies, but then also sort of just patriarchy. Right. Um, that's an existential shock for, you know, centuries of tradition of white male domination. Mm -hmm. um, this is the perfect storm to implement these policies for a group that benefited from the welfare state. Like they benefited from redistribution downward. Right. And so that's the main component. Another element is finance. And this is sort of often overlooked, but finance and multinationals. So, Finance and multinationals come out of the depression, a battered a bit. Finance, especially, they're you know they're seen you know as a big part of the crash, mm -hmm. um, and so they're dealing with regulations through the '30s and the '40s. But a, a part of sort of the democratic approach to the welfare state is getting rid of this old critique of monopoly. So think of Teddy Roosevelt and that more progressive approach to dealing with big capital, right, or big business. Mm -hmm. Uh, was a critique of monopoly and concentration of capital. So right. a part of this Faustian bargain of the welfare state is you get rid of the argument that monopolies or big companies are bad for right. competition. Right. Um, and that's fine with a lot of companies that sort of jumped on board with the welfare state. Mm -hmm. They benefited very well with the, um, with the Marshall Plan in Europe. Okay. where it just provided a stimulus for transnational, right. multinational businesses right. to right. go abroad and, then and invest. Go invest. Right. But it also taught, because of the regulations and the way capital flows work, you couldn't necessarily bring back dollars from Europe to the United States. 
So they're created a Euro dollar mm-hmm. market mm-hmm. and these sort of segmented international economic relations for finance and multinationals, it was sort of a training ground on how to get through all the different, how to get, how to create loopholes in this. Right. And so these businesses and finance learn over the decades from the forties, fifties and sixties, how to negotiate this. And by the seventies with this perfect storm of neoliberals and conservatives coming together, you know, the, the backlash against civil rights in 1966, mm-hmm. the election of Nixon in 68, and the rise of really Milton Friedman coming into to advise um, the Republican administration. That's sort of the perfect storm where multinationals and finance are finally kind of have a champion mm-hmm. in the GOP. They begin to start you know, uh, calling for the dismantling of the welfare state. Right. Um, you have that large demographic of the white middle class, working class, who now all of a sudden the welfare state means giving these redistribu- redistributed, redistribution benefits mm-hmm. to people of color, mm-hmm. which suddenly is Doesn't antithesis. Right. Yeah, it's right. because this is supposed to be, they again, people growing up, if you're not, anyone born before 1964 grew up in a Jim Crow society. So right. that leads to this moment, the 70s, compounded by, right, the economic crisis globally with the, the 70s recessions, mm-hmm. um, which itself is a part of decolonization. Right. Um, new markets opening, new resources. Right. Multinationals wanting to get into there. So all these constraints are being pushed against. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a perfect storm that leads to, you know, the welfare state becoming increasingly being dismantled and then you have democrats that also shift and that's right. you know so, sort of the the birth of the bill clinton dnc democrats mm-hmm. comes from this you know uh, economic right rightward shift mm-hmm. uh while staying liberal socially okay so um something that you brought up and i wanted to, and i i wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit more is about and so you're talking about neoliberalism kind of reaching a sort of peak in the 1960s which was around the same time that you had the civil rights movement also gaining traction how much did these two if you wanted to call them movements how much did these two movements work for each other or support each other well, because neoliberalism is, again, it's classical liberalism reimagined in reaction to the welfare state. So right. the welfare state in the mind of a neoliberal is the road to serfdom, right? The road to socialism and communism. Mm-hmm. Any move towards a welfare state, you know, social, social security is seen as a, just one step away from communism. It's a part right. of that Cold War conservative atmosphere. Right. I, in, my, in sort of the way I describe civil rights, Systematically, mm-hmm. I think civil rights legislation, to use neoliberal language, is the deregulation of labor in the United States because unions were exclusive. Wow. Yeah. They were racist. They yep. were sexist. They yep. kept women and people of color out. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, uh, civil rights legisl- legislation works in favor of a neoliberal world mm-hmm. because it's removing government intervention mm-hmm. in the economy. Mm-hmm. And so now the government can't say, or you can't legally do something and not, you know, be sued. You can't just have an all white union. Okay. Right. You okay. can't. Okay. And what that does to labor is mm-hmm. previous prior to the civil rights, you had sort of a tiered labor system right? where you pay white men more than black men, yes. more than 
white women, black women, et cetera. You know, there's a, a hierarchy. With civil rights legislation, suddenly that dissolves. Everyone's in a labor pool. Right. And suddenly that's, and that was a part of this sort of baby boom. Right. The 70s saw the largest influx of labor in a generation. Wow. So the labor market exploded in the 70s without the legal white nationalist legislation that used to create a racially, sexually, uh, or gendered tier. Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden it's just sort of this massive labor pool and then that helps to push wages down. Right. And so if you're, um, you know, a, a white man who worked in some industry, um, now all of a sudden you don't have that upper hand in getting sort of the living wage or the family wage mm-hmm. because now you're competing with all these groups of people that your the previous generation never had to compete with. Right. At the same time, factories, because of this multinational moment and the opening of markets overseas, these factories are also moving overseas. Right. And so it's like, that, again, that's the perfect storm for a group of people that in terms of like white white male workers mm-hmm. now having to compete a larger pool of competition right but the number of jobs is dwindling, dwindling really fast right right and so a part of this you know perfect shift and this is what nixon really steals from george wallace right the democratic mm-hmm. uh, segregation guy mm-hmm. um is a, a populist conservatism which is different from the economic conservatism or popular the economic populism of the of the New Deal, which saw big business as sort of an antagonist, and we should have an economy that works for like the middle and working classes. Okay. Nixon helps to create this idea of the silent majority using Wallace as sort of you know you'd use coded coded uh, coded phrases like you know like the the most popular one that still you know. Is, circulates today are the, the welfare queen summons up you know uh, a woman of color that is just you know sponging off government right you know handouts that sort of thing that's how you convince people that benefited from the welfare state to reject it mm-hmm. when you open it to people that were previously you know second class citizens and then you yourself didn't think that you received that redistributive benefit right you're going to vote for the party that wants to dismantle that right at the same time this group of people were not allowed to move into your white subsidized suburbs right during the post-war new deal welfare state again Uh the welfare state was a jim crow welfare state right and so there's a lot of pent-up resentment that yeah, you would vote for the, the, the people that pull out these cultural code words that mm-hmm. really summon up ideas of race. Mm-hmm. I think the other part, too, in this is uh, the 1965 sort of the Immigration Act where they dismantle the racist components. Mm-hmm. So on top of all of this, and this is, you know, we see this today, but it's this sort of anti, the xenophobic component of right. conservatism, which, again, is that populist conservatism. Right. Um, you're looking at cultural elements and really dismissing any economic arguments. Mm-hmm. So economic populism looked at the economics of mm-hmm. the situation, was anti-monopoly, mm-hmm. anti-concentration of capital, comes mm-hmm. from the populist movement right. of the late 19th century, mm-hmm. is embodied sort of in the New Deal, even though they, they you know, part of the bargain is getting rid of that critique. Right. Um, but by the 70s, that goes out the window. Right. And you now are just driven through this populist conservative culture war. Right. Um, and then that's, I mean, really, that's the, 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 the aftermath of that is what we all live through today with 
outlawing his, you know, teaching of history, condemning equity, equality, mm-hmm. you know, uh, those sorts of programs and different organizations right. and that sort of thing. I mean, there's, I, I think it's naive to think that going into the seventies, if it's the first decade of social legislated, social equality, there wouldn't be a very, there wouldn't be a visceral reaction mm-hmm. after, what is it? Three something like 346 years of slavery and Jim Crow yeah. policy. Yeah. So that's a, that's a long time, a deep traditions of, you know, entitlement right. for certain groups over other groups. Right. And when that entitlement's removed, that per, that group that has enjoyed that for over 300 years sees it as a loss of rights. Right. And an attack on the America that they know, an attack on tradition and that sort of thing. So it's, Again, that 60s to the 80s, that's that perfect storm. Mm-hmm. It shifts, you know, the entire country from that welfare state to a neoliberal economy. And then really from the 80s on with Reaganomics, which is neoliberalism more mm-hmm. or less, mm-hmm. you have the largest wealth, the largest measurable wealth inequality we've seen since right before the Great Depression. So um, so something else that I wanted to go back to, and you mentioned it um, in your previous answer, is about this idea, neoliberalism or America during the 60s to the 80s, really kind of breaking with tradition that came before it, right? Like slavery ideas and Jim Crow, all of that for 340 years. If you took it to a global context, this was also the time that a lot of nations that had been colonized, either by the French or the British, are finally earning their post-colonial moment, right? Again, doing away with traditions that the British or the French had created and imposed on them. Do you see any parallels between those post-colonial nations and what America was going through between the 60s and the 80s? Yeah, so there, there is a book, uh, Quinn Slobodian, Slo- um, um, his book called Globalists, and his argument is that neoliberalism is this is a global movement that was in dialogue with this decolonization. So the idea is, you know, during imperialism, you know, like Britain, right, mm-hmm. would take over a country, mm-hmm. um, but the entire economy of the country was geared as like sort of either a market for British goods right. or the extraction of resources. Right, right. And it wasn't in any sense some sort of Adam Smith free market. No, no. The fear was that when these countries finally gained independence, mm-hmm. they would do what the British and the U.S. did, where the democratic channels would lead to welfare states okay. and lead to protectionist measures, tariffs, right. that sort of thing. Right. And so a part of the neoliberal logic was to make sure that when these countries decolonized, mm-hmm. became independent, mm-hmm. they were unable to, they were able, uh, neoliberals wanted to make sure that economies were protected from democracy. Okay. Really, like, that's really the big thing that I, I would argue for neoliberalism is, to make sure that the economy cannot be affected by the passions of democracy. So if big business is doing X, Y, Z, or finance is doing whatever, Mm -hmm. people should not have the power to interfere with that because it's, it's a part of the economy. The economy needs to be free. Right. Um, It has its own logic as neoliberals would say, it's the greatest information processor. If you mess with it, you're messing with nature. Okay. Right. Which, 
I mean, you just have to look at economic history for the last <laughs> 500 years right. and it's, it's completely controlled and it's in, in many ways just based off whims. But at the moment that people, again, people that were deemed as second class citizens, mm -hmm. sometimes not even human, the moment they get control over their nation, um, there's this fear that they're going to use uh, their country and their resources for their own benefit and not sort of the benefit of the global economy, which of course, you know, after 500 years, the global economy is, mm -hmm. it was in the hands of the, 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 you know, the, the Dutch and then the English right. and then the United States. Right. And now we're in sort of a new, more decentralized phase, but yeah, neoliberalism is both a reaction to the welfare state on a local national level, but the logic of it and the, the dialogue and the rhetoric it points to sort of this global, you know, fear that these decolonizing countries would remove free market ideas from their economy. So once again, uh, if we go back to the United States again, what would you say are some of the three or four cultural contributions? in our daily lives that we probably see now that this moment of neoliberalism made to American society? I think the main one is we are comfortable with bailing out private enterprise, okay. which you see there, there, weren't a, there weren't the types of economic crashes that we see after the rise of neoliberalism in the 80s between the 40s and the 70s. Okay. You had recessions, but there were not catastrophic crashes. like the 2008 one yeah so 2008 okay. right. um, arguably the Enron moment right, right. late 90s mm -hmm. right the late 90s that was more global mm -hmm. um, and then the the 87 right the, the, the savings and loan right right that so mm -hmm. you have these moments where companies in a state of deregulation escalate sort of Basically, you know, you're gambling on the economy type of thing. Right. The bottom falls out. There's a massive crash. Right. And for the most part, it's become not controversial to bail out big companies because they're, quote, too big to fail. Right. Um, right. For people caught up in it, so regular people, so middle class, working class type people, we don't bail out them because, again, the neoliberal logic suggests that that would be socialism. Right. You don't bail out regular people that they, you know, because you would say they made bad decisions or bad investments. They shouldn't have bought the house, but the business environment said that they could and they were allowed and right. the legislation allowed them to do it. So, right. so if you're going to allow them to do it, they're going to do it in, in the sense of big business. You have, we're going to deregulate things. There's no laws against what they do, mm -hmm. but what they do is would be criminal if there was laws that people were able to, create to you know contain that kind of stuff but that's not there so it's just kind of this arbitrary the law has a very neoliberal bias to it it's um so i thought that was a that was an excellent like thank you so much for talking to us about the book so now if i had to turn to you know you teaching you've been here for two years here at forte state university in the history department what do you like about teaching students at this university. I mean, Fort Hayes students are hungry. They don't take things for granted. They're not, they don't have that sense of entitlement that I've seen in other places. You know, they work hard. Um, everyone's working two jobs. So it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for students to come here and do classes, but 
Um, there's an energy to it. Um, the smaller classes make this an ideal mm-hmm. you know, place to teach. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dan, for talking to us. And if you want to know more about Dan, Professor Dan McClure's book, Winter in America, he will be giving a book talk and signing copies of the book on Wednesday, March the 2nd at the Sunset Auditorium in Memorial Union between 2 and 3 p.m. here at Fort Hay State University campus. On on another note, if you want to stay updated on the interesting new research our current students and faculty are undertaking, subscribe to victorehistory.com and stay updated on new episodes coming out every two weeks.